folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace High of 3773 East Broadway. This is a special live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast. The Jim Parisi Show and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making this part of your day today and a guy who's been on my radar in my hemisphere for quite some time. Uh, finally got a chance to connect with him today, and uh, it is a, it's a high honor. Larry Fulcher, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Uh, thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Well, you're part of the people's history of music, man. I mean, I, I guess I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about... Um, I, I had an opportunity to interview Charles Neville over the weekend, and um, he spent time in Angola prison in Louisiana. Um, and it was kind of a revelatory thing for a variety of reasons. But I just wanted to know if you could talk about a time in your life when uh, you faced, you were up against a lot of adversity, uh, how you overcame it, and how it made you stronger. Well, you know, um, my family is, is from East Texas. And, uh, you know, back in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, as, as a child, I, I guess it was adversity, but I didn't really think of it as, as such at the time. There was a lot of segregation. Um, there was racial this, that, and the other. And uh, I think what got us out of East Texas was the, the third time that the plan or whatever burned down my dad's business. And, um, you know, my dad was kind of a take no guff kind of guy. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to pick up my piece and call the family and we'll, we'll go to war. <laughs> but my mom was always just loved everybody. She, to her, hatred was not a word that was tolerated, especially hatred of other human beings. So we just kind of bailed. She said it's time to move to Southern California. And it turned out to be such a positive move. Um, you just learned that love conquered hate. Love, love led us to a better surrounding, and it took us into first time an integrated atmosphere where I got to see that people were people, and you judge people by what they could do, by whether or not they were your friends, by whether or not they treated you with respect and kindness. That was really... Uh, eye-opening and, and, and a revelation for me and it kind of set the, the framework for how I approached life and people and meeting people and, and, and prepared me to get out and relate to the world globally learn that people are people going back to the idea of the uh, the clan burning down your house three times what is it about well, no, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't, it wasn't house it was my dad's businesses there was resentment because we lived in a small town and my dad didn't work for anyone he had his own businesses you know he had a garage uh he had a couple of juke joints <laughs> and we sold timber from our land so he wasn't really dependent upon right no well, i mean when i yeah when i interviewed uh um for the second for the third time i had a chance i went out to L.A. and visited Ndugu Chancellor in person, and he was French Creole, and he had the same. His dad had a had a thriving independent business uh, in Louisiana, and was run out of town by uh, 
by whoever you know the the the, the white power and what I'm trying to get at is if you could talk to the audience around the world, really, uh, the, you know, uh, Texas comes across as uh, very patriotic, uh, very American. We keep hearing about all this stuff about being a patriot, being American. Uh, and yet what it comes, what does that really mean in Texas? Because like you said, you got to Southern California and, and you're, and you know, you're just one of so many cats that, when you went to Southern California, you're like, oh, this is integration. This is humanity. But what does being an American really mean to people in Texas? Well, you know, Texas is, is a rebellious kind of place. And I always tell people that, you know, no matter what race they are, whether you're white, black, or brown, I generally can tell you're a Texan first. <laughs> You know what I mean? We're a little bit louder. We can sometimes be a little bit more obnoxious. But um, there's a spirit of independence and sort of rebelliousness among Texans, you know, that willingness to go against the grain. And uh, but one of the things that we've seen here, uh, especially with the flood the last few days, is they're also capable of, of uniting and helping each other and pulling together before the government or before the authorities get involved. So it's kind of a double-edged thing. Does that make sense? No, I totally dig that, and I can feel that even though, I mean, I'm in Tucson, and I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Texas at all, and I, you know, I'm, but, you know, I mean, my man Chuck Rainey lives down there. I just talked to him again for the third time, you know, and he's in Dallas. But yet, it's, this, right. it, I mean, going back to when you were, when you were coming up as a boy, uh, it's just uh, the African American is not an animal. They're not human. They're just somewhere in between. I'm just trying to get it because your dad was running what was supposed to be. That's the American ideal. The American ideal is pulling yourself up by your bootstrap, being completely ind uh, independent, not relying on quote unquote handouts. But yet that was threatening, and he was basically. I mean, he was ready to go to blows, but, you know, you guys wanted to, you saw the bigger picture and moved on. And I'm just trying to say, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I kind of have my own understanding of it, but I'm just trying to talk to you considering our current situation in our country, why it is that what they preach, they, do, they only want that for white America, not for anybody else. And it has that changed at all. Uh, you know, if, if I go back and compare it to when I was a kid to what it is now, I would say for the most part, it's, it's, it's at least on the surface, it's a lot better. Like, like the, the, the same people or descendants of people that were really ready to drop in bombs on me are my folks when I was a kid. They now call me sir. <laughs> And and for the most part, a lot of them are polite. You know, even even in the country towns. You know, I walk into a, a, a supposedly little redneck store, and it's, "How you doing, sir? Yes, sir." Blah blah. You know, um, evolution works in a lot of ways. You know, I, I think it's in people's basic human nature. If you're just dealing one on one, to get along with people, it's when you get in groups and get into group think and, and mob type behavior that I, I find most of the foolishness. As long as it's one-on-one, -on -one, I generally can get along with anybody on earth. You know, uh, a handshake and a smile and a pleasant 
uh, vibe about yourself tends to take you a long way. You know, I think that's universal. So I, I apply that now to being back in Texas. I would approach people with politeness and kindness and a handshake and a smile. And that seems to work 99% of the time, especially one-on-one. Right. So, the, and that, and, and I dig what you're saying, and I think you're articulating it well, but you dig just the surface? You're okay with people talking? I mean, the point is, it's okay to be superficial in, in America? Is that what it's about? Because I mean, because because what what I'm getting at is that we just saw mob violence take place in Charlottesville. Okay, Um, you know the this whole idea of um, I just go back to this idea of saying, you know, has it fundamentally changed? Is it more? Is the racism more covert now? Like you said, like it was overt. Richard Davis was Stravinsky's favorite bass player. But Richard Davis couldn't get a gig with any New York orchestra, classical orchestra, because he was black, right? But that was overt, right? I mean, they, you know, eventually they put up, yeah. they put up a curtain so you couldn't tell what color they were. So, you know, if, you know, uh, Emmett Till looked at the white woman the wrong way and he was murdered, okay? So that, that was very overt, separate water fountains, separate bathrooms. But now it's like more of a covert thing, kind of what you're talking about, like exchange pleasantries, be polite, and then go back to your groupthink mentality. Texas is the most important example of a place that is just they they are basically they could care less about being really attached to the to the greater United States. They consider themselves their own republic and they wear that as a badge of honor. So I'm just trying to say this. You you are you know, I mean. Clearly, there are many very decent people. Texas is a huge place. But what I'm getting at is this idea of the covert racism that's still there and still. And and now, like Barry Goldwater didn't win the presidency, but Donald Trump did win. So now they have a megaphone. So I just I, you know, to me, it's like I'm like you're doing your part. But how do you and 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 but and do do you do you see that there is do you feel like there still is covert racism there or, or, or in our in our country because we're still dealing with the original sin of slavery you know we just we can't get over that and, and frankly a lot of people still feel like that that war might still not be over yet I, I think I think it's a, co- a complex answer Jack to tell you the truth I, I think tribalism is global you know um I think people will still uh, sometimes have a tendency to revert to me and my kind. You know what I mean? In quotations, me and my kind. And and get into that kind of a group think. Um, man, I'll give you an example. Go ahead. And, 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 and maybe this will explain my feeling on it. We were in Northern Ireland with Taj in Belfast. Like in the late 90s, when the IRA, the Catholics, and the Protestants were just going at it like crazy. Now, me being a black musician, I could walk anywhere in Belfast, and people were generally polite to me. So I was asking these guys, man, how do you tell who you hate? I'm looking at you, and you all are white. To me, from the outside, you all look alike to me. How do you know who to hate? 
and they would justify it with something that happened in 1620 or 1630 or 16, you know, and uh, uh, this resort to tribalism. You know, you, you, you go to a place like Nigeria where everybody's black, but there's all these tribes, and you see black people not getting along. Uh, I think people, there's some part of human nature, and I can't explain it, although I have theories. <laughs> I think that that's one of the genes that we take on when we take on these human bodies. It's not right, but I think people will do it. You know, I, I think that there's some tribal thing that happens that comes out that has to say that I'm a little bit better than you or you're a little bit different than me for whatever reason. And we get into these groupthink situations. Uh, I don't like it, but it, it, it seems to be part of, of, of the human condition. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, c c did you, um, you, you, did you run into uh, experiences like once you moved to California, but when you started the tour, um, did you have run-ins with the Klan at all in the Southeast or anywhere in the United States? Well, back in the early '80s, playing reggae. You know, and reggae was kind of different phenomenon. It was, you know, it was a coastal phenomenon. You hit the coastal cities on either the east, west, or Florida, and reggae was very popular. But taking the in, into some mixed acts with Jamaicans and Americans, we go into like say Jackson, Mississippi, in '81 or '82, and you know, I'm a black American. The drummer was a white Californian, and we're traveling with Big Youth and Uroy, two well-known Jamaican artists. Wow. And uh, even in the 80s, we'd walk into a restaurant, and it was integrated, but the black waitress would come over and take my order. <laughs> the white waitress would come over and take the white guy and the British guy's order. We'd go into, like, a Sears. The black clerks would wait on me. The white clerks would come and, 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 and serve them. You know, um, what in a macro sense? I'm 39. Millennials, younger cats. What is that? What is that overarching? Why is there such segre? Why did it have to be all segregated like that? Where does that come from? Well, it, it came from from the history of the South. I mean, uh, that especially for that generation. Now we're talking. This was the 80s. So you know the. I'm sure that the clerk that waited on me or the clerk that waited on them had grown up where segregation was rampant. It was the order of the day. You know, the the state capital of Mississippi was in Jackson, and they had a plaque outside that this was uh, this capital was built with slave labor. So there's still some of that tribal thing going on. Uh, I would like to think that it gets less and less as we go on. Um, You know, as different generations come along and people are more accustomed to growing up together or liking the same musical artists or liking sports teams that are integrated. Um, what I saw is, is some of the great levelers, like me growing up in the 50s and 60s, what really helped bring down some barriers. We well, can go back to the 40s when, when Joe Lewis fought Max Schmeling. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. America was 
represented by a black man for the first time, and the Nazis were represented by this white German. So if you were an American, you were inclined to pull for Joe Lewis as he represented America. You were inclined to uh, to pull for Jesse Owens because he represented America. So people were forced to think of themselves as Americans as opposed to, to as opposed to black and white. I think the, the the two of the main forces in integrating this country were music and sports. You know, because uh, music is just international. You know, it, it, it's the universal language. So you find out you can like the same kind of music for artists, and if you wanted to go see someone, there were black people and white people that liked the same artists. So it brought down some barriers. Uh, but yeah, I mean, but okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put, I'm gonna counter you and say that. Uh, a, a dear friend of yours uh, that's all great but Papa Molly was in that Killer Bees band that you eventually were in and him and Michael mm-hmm. Johnson him and Michael Johnson were diving behind dumpsters because they were getting shot at it at, mm-hmm. at, you know at three in the morning because it was a mixed race band and I look at that was, and I look at and those that and, was, yeah go it, ahead on stage blacks and whites were liking the band dig you know, on stage, driving through Louisiana in the middle of the night, there wasn't any kind of a unifying factor other than they saw a mixed band and, and their, we call them rednecks, whatever. They resented it. They hated it. They did. But, but, I mean, you know the story of them in 1980 getting yeah. basically pulled over on the side of the road and put down. They were, they were going to lose their lives if, if Michael Johnson didn't roll into the road and save them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm and I'm not going to say that even today that, that that wouldn't happen in certain segments of rural Louisiana or Mississippi or wherever or even rural Montana. How about yeah? How about Boston, man? They just they just had neo-Nazi march there, and in 1952, Pete Seeger was bringing Paul Robeson up and the and the Peekskill Clan through the through the uh, boulders through the bus. So I, I you know here's the, here's I just want to read you this quote. I've done three interviews with M. Tume. I don't know if you ever played mm-hmm. with him to me, but he said, yeah. he said, as a black man in America, there's nothing new about what happened to Flandro Castillo. And that was the cat who got murdered by the cop in Minnesota. The only thing that, that's new about white cops getting off when they kill somebody black is that even having a film of it doesn't make a difference. Rodney King, you saw the footage and those guys got off. Yeah. That, now we see white cops that can murder you in cold blood on film and white people, jurors, won't convict a white cop for killing a black person. So what I'm, I guess I dig the sports analogy. I mean, you're, you're going back to when it was very overt racism and that integration of sports and you know, some of these seminal moments and music obviously pushed forward that civil rights movement, but I don't think we've made a lot of tangible progress in the sense that there really is an equal justice under the law and now you have like you said the white waitress served the british cats and the black waitress served this person and it's like now it's like you have jurors who look at it and say there's no way in my conscience because of how i was raised with my cultural biases that i can convict a white police officer who murdered a black man well, unfortunately, that's true, and, and that may go on 
you know, for that may go on for an indeterminate part of our future. You know, I just have to look at it as I can do what I'm responsible for and influence in the most positive way what I can influence. And if I can do things through my music, through my being, through my personality that bring people together, then it's my responsibility. God gave me this responsibility to use my talents and what I can do to bring people together. I abhor and hate racism, whether it's whites against blacks, blacks against browns, anybody against anybody, because I've seen through my experiences that people are really capable of getting along and treating each other wondrously. Right. Human beings are capable of incredible acts of, of kindness, but also incredible acts of cruelty. So I just have to try and use my energy and my efforts and my education and my experiences to, to unite people, you know, to, to show that people are people, and that's really what religion and love of God is about you know is, is uh, the golden rule of treating people the way you want to be treated that's the goal to get people to, to, to do that on an individual basis and the more we can spread that kind of spirit that kind of spirit and and share those experiences the more we can bring people together am I am I reasonably knowing what I know do I think that we'll, we'll get total acceptance of people no because things are cyclical the same populace that elected a Barack Obama then turned around and elected a Donald Trump. And I cannot think of more polar opposite personalities than those two. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. And, I'll, and then we can put a wrap on this. And I appreciate you going there with me. But because I really did, I really did start my show six years ago. I know you, you're just, you've been kind of hip to my show the last couple of years, but I started yeah. Uh, six years ago, uh, basically because I just couldn't believe um, that a pretty decent human being was being treated uh, with, you know, beneath respect. I mean, it was it was very covert racist stuff. And, you know, uh, no matter what he did, Barack Obama, uh, he was a, you know, people wonder why, you know, why is Trump being misconstrued, quote unquote, as a as a as a racist or a, a Nazi sympathizer? Well, yeah, Hillary Clinton's campaign may have floated the trial balloon that we should do this nativist thing or this tribal thing like you talked about, but they never went public with it. They nixed it. They thought it was a bad idea. Trump was out front for seven years pumping the birther movement, okay? He ran that thing, and he wound, he, wound, he got elected based off that thing. So I guess what I, I be, being that you know you can only affect change in, in Larry Fulcher's world and the musical world and inspire in the musical world, what is what what should people be most vigilant about as it relates to the fact that we basically have a mentally ill incompetent person running the country who clearly has cultural biases towards minorities what should people be most worried about in the long run because you'll see hysteria hysteria on the left but at the same time he's militarizing the police uh, it, we're, it, we're, we're in a very different time. Barry Goldwater did not get elected. Donald Trump did get elected. What is the danger of that in the long run? The, the, one of the biggest dangers I see is, is that a lot of moderate, temperate people didn't vote. The majority of the 
the majority of people who were eligible to vote in this country, for whatever reason, did not vote. Donald Trump was elected by about 25% of the American populace because they motivated, they kindled, they stoked that racial division. Uh, we knew when when Obama was elected that there was another shoe that would fall. I don't think any of us thought it would be this bad. But for whatever reason, those, uh, those Bernie Sanders people that just would not vote for Hillary, and not that Hillary was the perfect candidate, but I think she's much more preferable to my way of thinking than this son of a bitch Part of my language that we have. Uh, we, we, yeah, you know, feel feel free. We're 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 full full internet <laughs> extraterrestrial radio, so you can say whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, this this guy is abhorrent. He he stands against every piece of of core decency, human decency, that I can think of. But the majority of people did not vote for whatever reason. Whether they said the heck with it, or my vote doesn't count, or I'm so pissed off that it's Hillary and not Bernie. That segment of people that didn't vote. I'm also upset with Hillary that once she got the nomination, that I think if she had gotten Bernie as her VP, that could have stopped this stuff. But, you know, I, I, maybe we needed this as a wake-up call. Sure. To see how bad things get if, if, if people don't go out and stand up for decency. Um, How about stand up for humanity too? I mean, this is like. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, also, I mean, listen. I, I I've been tapping into uh, my my latest regional passion has been uh, you know New Orleans. I've been diving deep into uh, uh, you know Papa obviously uh, grew up in Louisiana, but you know I've been going after Paul Boudreau and 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 Alfred Roberts and and some of the Mardi Gras Indians like Juan Pardo and you know I mean. Boudreaux told me, you know, oh, no, I'm sorry, it was this was the late great Butch Trucks, you know, I mean, driving across southern Alabama, which is where our attorney general's from, uh, mm-hmm. they, they, when the Allman Brothers walked into that, uh, to a, uh, a restaurant, um, uh, J-Mo disappeared. Uh, he he got ta- hauled off to jail, and they actually all got hauled off to jail, yeah. and it, they spent two or three days in the slammer. So, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, again, we don't have... Um, I just think it's the humbling part. The hu- is that it's. I think that to know that this is all tracing back to the. I going in the '90s in high school and through college at Boston University, I really felt like we were going through a I'm naively really a, a post-racial time in our country. We were we were obviously economic. I think part of the issue is also economically people are are desperate and 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 one reason they 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 tapped into trump was because of the inner rage and desperation they have because we've never our economy is whatever it says is 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 falling now very it's not in good shape the rich are getting richer so we were in better shape economically but i thought we were living through post post post-racial society but as you can see as the generations move on People are dying off from those seminal wars, the World War II, the Korean War, um, and now you're getting this sort of new breed of, of tribalists or uh, whatnot that that are that are pretty hung up on their own cultural biases. So it's just it's just a long hard slog. And like you said, I think you said something. I don't think anybody thought it would get this bad. I mean, can you believe the reaction to eight years of a of a um, scandal-free presidency with a with a great 
human being. Like maybe Obama wasn't the best president, but he was a, a classy dude and he has a great family. And that seems to, to epitomize the American way. And yet, uh, uh, you know, this is the direct fallout. I mean, if there's even in his dark, even in his most alone time, Donald Trump would say his biggest priority is to erase the legacy of Barack Obama. Jake, I, I think it's, it, there's a pendulum. It swings back and forth. And as far as it swung to the left to, to elect Obama, it had to swing to the right. You know what I mean? Um, I, I'm not happy with it, but that's, that's the way this pendulum is swinging. What I'm really hoping is that this element doesn't last us for eight years. You know, normally we have eight years of a Republican, eight years of a Democrat. I'm really hoping and praying that we don't have eight years of this madness. I hope that so many people abhor this guy and are, dis are disgusted with his actions, that people are motivated in the midterm election and um, in the 2020 election. I hope in, in the, that they really vote in the, 20, in, in the midterm election so we can stop some of the gerrymandering of districts. So people's votes are representative of, of what people really think. And we don't, you know, we don't have this districting, districting uh, where if you belong to one party or the next, you can, you can, you can manipulate <laughs> the vote count electorally uh, to represent what I, what I see as the forces of darkness. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you. So, okay, so we'll pivot out of here because you you've been rocking out, and I, I know how you feel, and 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 you're 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 being you're you're keeping people in, uh, inspired by the the inclusive message. Um, the do you feel one reason um, Black Lives Matter or some of these uh, protests or you know sort of um, people that are the resist resist movement to Trump. Um, is lacking in in momentum and pulse because there's no musical component. I go back. I've interviewed Hugh Masekela. I've interviewed Mike Clark and Paul Jackson. Those cats were playing. I've interviewed uh, Stuart Levine. Those cats were playing Black Panther rallies. I mean, the the great the Grateful Dead were doing all sorts of stuff for Three Mile Island or No Nukes. There was all. I mean, you had mainly the Vietnam War was stopped because of the protest folk music that was going on. I don't see the musical component attached to the political social movements. Is there validity to that? Is that one reason that some of these movements have not really been able to take flight? Is that there's a lack of of creative melodic improvisation attached to it? I think what has happened uh, in a large part, I would say, is in the sixties and seventies. Radio was more open, where groups like the Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane or Hugh Masekela or Gil Scott Heron could be heard uh, in mass on radio. What's played on radio now, man, is really watered and filtered down. There's not that much social music that gets played on, on what we would call mainstream radio. And the artists are out there. There's, there's the Michael Frankies out there. There's, there's still the reggae music. There's still the people who are talking about social consciousness. But that won't doesn't seem to get played as much as the foolish hip hop. You know, yeah. I don't I don't hear that many Public Enemies, Chuck D's, or, or uh, 
or KRS-1s on the radio as much as I hear the little surface ditty box bullshit. <laughs> yeah, no, but, no, okay, so, so going back in your, in your paradigm, when you, when you uh, looking back on it, when did music, in your mind, when did you start to see, uh, especially on the radio dial, uh, music made, music commercialized for pacification rather than authenticity. Then Phil Ramlin, the great bone player out of Detroit, told me, he goes, music today is made for pacification. Uh, now, again, the hip-hop stuff and the messages they're talking about, um, they're, they're getting, you know, white America is filling their coffers. Uh, but but um, when did music go, in your mind, from a, a, a collective consciousness uh, um, uh, sort of extravaganza to... Uh, music for people to tune out. Uh, I don't want to use the word elevator music, but music for pacification. Uh, I don't even know if it was music for pacification. I think it became music that that, that could be <laughs> exploited most for profit. You know, I mean, we, we got into to this whole thing where music wasn't really music. You know, you get into the to the Britney Spears, uh, Milli Vanilli, whatever. Right. The the whole bump um, thing uh, that could be digested by the masses uh, and and dumbed down seemed to take over the radio along with with, with the whole. I mean, you familiar with with the, the, what they call the Drake system, right? When that came become became a part of radio. When the playlist became taken out of the hands of the individual radio station programmers more and, and, and formatted into what they thought would generate the highest revenue stream. Right. And I a conscious music being filtered out of the radio for money. You know, con I mean, cash became more important than content. And now you have to look for it. And if you try and say too much in a song, your odds of getting it played in uh, in mass seem to have gone down. Plus, you know, when traveling, I see lots of really quality musical acts that are not getting played on commercial radio. You know, uh, the whole boy band thing, the, the lip-syncing thing, the... Uh, oh my gosh! No, you're, no I mean that. you're you're nailing this because it's it, what you're talking about. I mean, now you have people where you know they go into the studio and they sing, and the engineer says they say, "How did it sound?" The engineer said, "Terrible." But don't worry, we can come up and fix it. So you're really actually not dealing with actual crap. You're not dealing with musicians. You're not dealing with artists. You're not dealing with musicians. You're dealing with people that might have big Twitter followings, or they might have be beautiful looking, and they can play a part. But that speaks to the lack of authenticity in music. That's the issue. You know, I'll go back. I'll go back to the '90s when this, I heard a, a Motown executive say, "If a Wilson ticket or an Otis Redding walked into my studio today, uh, they wouldn't get signed." You know, I would be a lot more inclined to sign something generic that I thought would appeal to the masses more than someone that was going to be really soulful. You know, I, I pity people that didn't get to grow up with Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and Pop Staples 
well, you know, when respect yourself and things like that were on the radio, I, 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 I really, really do. They just didn't. They they were they were nurtured and enculturated on bubblegum and and on music that, that didn't say very much. It followed the same musical sequences and chord progressions that people were programmed to accept as this is what is cool. Right. You know, this is what's acceptable. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if that's evolution or de-evolution. <laughs> if that's one of the things that we were afraid would happen. But they're certainly happening. You know, my daughter is now an educator. And this is just, you know, a, a, a parallelogram of what's going on in music. She's not really allowed to educate kids. She's given a format. They are taught to pass a standardized test. She was criticized for telling a kid that if you keep this attitude, you're going to wind up working a job with your name on your shirt. Or, you know, you're being trained to be a convict. And she was calling to the office and saying, no, you can't tell the kids that because that's not part of our curriculum. You're not a, they're not being educated. They're being taught to pass standardized tests in the public schools. And if you really want your kids to get an education, you wind up sending them to the private school and seeking out that education for them. Um, so that's what I see happening with music. If you really want to find good music, you have to look for it these days. That's also the issue. And, that, and that's the other thing that's very important to talk about, Fulcher, is that uh, you guys had... Uh, especially when you were coming up, I mean, it was freeform radio and records and analog tapes. And now we are saturated. Mm -hmm. We are so saturated in material that you have to really seek if you are going to find the really quality stuff. Because like you said, the Franties and the Charlie Hunters and, you know, the Greybeards like Taj and, you know, these, uh, you know, these epic. I mean, there's just so much stuff. I mean, that's one of the invigorating things you have to have, but you have to be able to feel, Larry. And, and you know, my daughters have been growing up in this age of digitization where they've had digital beats compressed and crunched into their ears for two decades. They don't understand that space is the place. They don't understand that mm -hmm. they don't understand how to feel. So if you don't know how to feel the music, you're going to have a hard time identifying what is actually authentic music. That... That That's is, right. you know, and so, and then when you have this deluge of information on the, on the internet where you can just, I mean, everyone's like, well, I don't, I mean, oh, this one's getting 30,000 hits, so it must be good, you know? And so it's, it, right. you, you didn't have as much, you, the, the learning mediums for you were more tasteful because you had record uh, companies, whether it was Riverside or chess records or cat records down in Miami with little beaver, you know, I mean, I mean, this, they were, they were finding off. I mean, all the folkies that came out of Toronto, Lightfoot, Clayton Thomas, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, the, these guys were artists and people were signing them and they didn't expect to get a 15 second flash in the pan. They said, well, okay, we'll give them a, you know, it took Bruce Springsteen a few records to actually get a top forty hit. So there's just a there's just a saturation of material that I think makes it very hard for cats who did not grow up in a very open time in music to decipher what is authentic and good and what is not. Uh, that's true, and and I think it 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 the burden falls upon people that know 
quality, some non-quality, and I'm being, I'm generalizing here, people who know Chase from non-Chase, it, it's an incumbent upon us to try and educate the youth as much as we can to what real is. I mean, we, we grew up with with news being brought to us by John Cameron Swayze, by Huntley, Chad Huntley, David Brinkley. You got news. Now people are listening to a CNN or an MSNBC or a Fox where if one little issue comes up, that monopolizes the news cycle. Right. You know what I right, mean? Right, 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 right. So, you know, you, you don't really get the real information. You know, we grew up seeking people like Bob Dylan. We grew up seeking people like Odetta. We grew up seeking what Gil Scott had. We grew up, my generation grew up going back and finding the old blues, you know, and, and exposing ourselves to writers like Shannon and, and Camus, uh, uh, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, that were going to give us real information. So the only... You know, it's like putting your finger in the dike and trying to hold back the water as best we can. We have to try and educate our kids and 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 people around us as much as we can to, to what's real. You know, I mean, I'll take my nieces and nephews and say, well, okay, now this is a temptation. This is James Bell. This is Bob Marley. Have you heard of them? Well, no, Uncle, I haven't. Were you going to? Um... We have to do that. We have to use forums like Jake, like what you're doing on the radio, to to, to educate and inform people. But I, you know, like you even know, even music. even me, like like right now, like it's about being as resourceful as possible because, you know, Larry. I mean, I hope millions of people are listening now, and I hope when I put this up online, people will stream it. But I realized, I said. Not everybody's going to stream my three hours of interviews with Papa Molly or my two hours of interviews with Jack DeJanet or this, that, and you know. So I have to transcribe it and put it into a different medium. And so you put up these transcripts or these excerpts for, that come from this stuff to diversify it so that you realize the power of the written word is still strong. But what's really amazing is that when you're doing something holistic or humanistic, that doesn't sell that you can't monetize that. And that makes it a very sort of, um, to me, it's a very uh, uh, nefarious kind of situation when you, I mean, nobody's looking to get, I'm not looking to get rich off this, but the idea that you can't find a way to syndicate a show like mine, but you can syndicate all the hate radio that's spewed out all day is a little bit mind boggling to me and speaks to sort of the, well, you know, we're going all the way around, but I agree. I think you're right. I think that one thing like, you know, like, you know, Hurricane Harvey comes in and it pretty much gets the entire news cycle, which maybe it deserves or the Russia meddling thing. But you're not getting news and you're definitely not getting unbiased. You're not getting objective news uh, that you can right. truly trust. So now you have uh, a large minority that's growing believing in completely fabricated fake news so it's just a very um uh yeah i mean I, I you know you were you guys were searching for authenticity i you know i wanted to ask you could you talk about um a lot of people in our textbooks like the ones that maybe your your daughter is is working out of um a lot of people think that civilization starts 
uh, in, with the Greeks and the Romans, but it actually starts in the motherland of Africa. The first universities were in Africa. The first medicines were discovered in Africa. So many different instruments, the kalimba and the banjo, and all discovered in Africa. And I was hoping you could talk about the first time you went back there to either play or to go and, 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 and stay and what your uh, memories are from, from the motherland. Well, you know, unfortunately, I have not been to the continent yet. Wow, you need to get uh, over there, man. And, and, well, here's when, the, when my daughter was born, I was scheduled to go to Africa with Big Youth and with you, Roy. And I had gone through the shots and the whole protocol, and my daughter was born early, so it was the choice of do I do this or do I want to be here when my daughter was born? And I chose uh, the birth of my child. Sure. And uh, um, yeah, I'm looking for reasons, and, and now that I've gotten her through school and she's well on her way, uh, a trip to South Africa is, is planned for me in uh, 2018. I, I, I really, really, really want to go. And, and, um, and I'm planning what, on... Would you, um, if, uh, would you have gone? Um, I, I, Ahmad Jamal didn't go till 10 years ago, he told me, because of the apartheid. I mean, do you still, I mean, you, you feel more comfortable going now than you would have maybe if you had the opportunity to go 20 or 30 years ago? Oh, man, this was 1984. I was comfortable going then. Would you have gone? You know, to, was, 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 it, was it North Africa or was it, was it in South Africa where you were going? At the time, we were going to go to Nigeria and to Mali, and all those string instruments that came out of Mali. I was, I was, I just wanted to be there. Yeah. <laughs> and the group in Ghana and, and Nigeria, since especially as that relates to uh, Black American music, you know, I mean, since most of, of of the the indigenous Black folks that were brought here were brought here from Western Africa. I wanted to go there and see that and be and, and experience that and and relate it to to what I was doing, and you know especially the more I've gotten into um, to working with the Jamaican artists to, to hanging out in Jamaica and, and and to being able to to travel and tour with some of the most influential reggae artists from the seventies and eighties from you know the big youth the Uroys the Mighty Diamonds. Uh, the, the whalers, the guys in third world, those were those were my teachers. You know, those are the guys that taught me the idiom. And then uh, bringing that in, into playing with, with Taj Mahal and and you know the the different African influences that have been in that music. You know, and Taj has been a great teacher and it's been a great experience for me, having a guy from that was able to well, I was able to utilize my skill set. You know, with this artist, you know, my blues, my R&B, my reggae, my jazz, everything that I was working with different artists. They said, now tone that down. Now pull that back a bit. And the tires are going, man, man, whatever you got to throw on the table, throw that shit on the table. And it's like, really? Okay, let's go. <laughs> um, you know, I, mean, I, I first ran into Taj, I guess, in 65 or 66. Before he was Taj Mahal with the quotes, he was the doorman at the Ash Grove. Yeah, he was a he was a this, jug this, bander, right? He was a jug band cat. 
Well, when he moved to L.A., he worked at the Ashgrove, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with that place, but uh, no, because uh, it, no, know, because uh, Barry Melton used to say he would he used to see Lester Chambers in Taj Mahal. They had a jug band down there. Oh yeah, man! You could do anything at the Ashgrove. I mean, <laughs> I went there. I saw Furry Lewis. I saw uh, Lightning Hopkins, who was a friend of my dad's back in Texas. I saw Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Uh, did you see? Uh, Sc- did you see? Did you see Scotty S- Scotty Stoneman by chance? Didn't see him there, but I saw like the Burrito Brothers. Oh yeah, yeah. See, uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So anyway, Taj. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sixty-six. He was the doorman there. You go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doc and Merle Watson, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, a uh, wow. uh, 19-year-old Linda Ronstadt wearing jeans and a T-shirt and sandals, and, and that was it. You know what I mean? I do. Like, oh, my God. This... <laughs> I mean, it was so – I mean, your, ear, your ears were huge. Your ears were just huge at that point. I mean, it did yeah. you know, because, I mean, it was an yeah. acceptance, and for whatever reason, the – well, I mean, it's there were a bunch of Bill Graham. Bill Graham gets the biggest nod, but there were Bill Grahams all over the country that were right. funneling this, you know. Uh, I mean, you, it could have been, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, McLaughlin said that uh, this is a few years later, but, you know, I mean, Richard Pryor would be opening for Miles, and, and, and the entire crowd was be, would be bending over crying, laughing so hard, they, they asked him to please stop. Please stop. (laughs) Like, you know, you you had this like incredible multi-tiered entertainment thing going on. It was not so formulaic. And now you got Live Nation. They own 90% of the venues. Every venue looks the same. Every every presentation is the same. And I guess, you know, all I'm saying is part of the reason, I mean, I I don't want another Hitler, man. And I don't, I hope, sure as hell, you know, because the more that you turn people into droids and non-thinking beings... Well, that's how you get another Holocaust, and it comes back in different forms. But we know history is cyclical. So, I mean, you cats really are, in so many ways, so important to not just the preservation, but the promotion of how real music is made, you know? Well, man, I'm trying, uh, you know, I go back to to my feelings on, on, on religion and my, my take on spirituality in, in the debt. You know, the big man is not the man that has the most. The big man is the guy that gives the most. So the things that I've been able to, that have passed through me, I try and channel them on and forward them on to people. And I really enjoy that part of what I do for a living. Can you give an example? Could you give an example? Could you give an example? Well... Yeah, my, my college degree. I mean, I got to. I went to the University of Minnesota at a time when you could, when you could channel your own degree. And my what I felt wanted to focus on was the way music and culture had migrated. You know, from from the beginning of humanity and how it migrated, and how the music moved from here to there, and 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 the things that connected us, and how this affected that, how this trade port and people traveling through there with this culture and this music and this colors and these these uh, seasonings <laughs> you know what I mean this 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 dyes uh, or whatever how that spread out through the world so um, I tried to incorporate all of that into the music that I'm doing 
And an example is in, in traveling, you go to so many places where people don't speak a lick of English. You know, not one word. You 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 you, you communicate by bows and and nods. And to be able to pass what I've learned on to people who my music is really alien to them and have them accept it and to see it affect their bodies and start them to move in a way that you, I know is greater than me. And then getting off the stage and being able to walk around in, in Tokyo or in New Zealand or in Lima, Peru or in different countries in different ethnosystems and have people say see me and and if they they know what I'm there for no matter what their political beliefs are or what their religious beliefs are they'll nod and smile and wave so I feel like I've been able to communicate with them with this gift and this of musical curiosity that God has given me you know and and bring people together and have them nod and smile and Say in their language, yeah, man, come in and have some food. Yeah, man, come in and have a drink. Yeah, man, come in and listen to my music. And thank you for bringing me yours. And even though I didn't understand their language, I knew what they were saying. You know what I mean? I know. Yeah. Yeah. To experience and feel that, man, I I can't tell you the validation that that we get as as musicians and, and as, uh, communicators to see that, that what we're trying to do is being communicated and received and understood in, in, in a nonverbal way, in a spiritual way. Right. Um, that, and it's true. And I, so I'm, you know, because those Stephen Ferroni, the great drummer, literally when he went over to Africa with Clapton, uh, they were playing this huge stadium and, and he just said the crowd, I mean, the way the people interpret the music and, and take and receive it is just so spiritual. There was like this, almost like this groan in the audience. It was like this murmur, this, 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 you know, is clearly a spiritual event. It wasn't something, uh, uh, like I said before, made for bubblegum pacification or just, you know, sort of like geeking out about it. It was, uh, you know, truly meant to be a spiritual experience. And that was the kind of, when you talk about migration, I mean, can you talk a little bit about um, the idea of, you know, the fact that music from the motherland and places like India, they were not notated? Uh, Have you played music like that where, you know, you've been, have you been in like an African band before where, you know, because the cats will go, I mean, I remember talking to John B. Williams. I don't know if you know that bass player. And he, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was gone. He played with Nancy Wilson. Yes. Yeah, he's a bad, bad, bad dude. I mean, I, I mean, played with Bobby oh, Hutcherson. Yeah. You know, and and he said yes. he was going over. Uh, he went over with uh, Benny Carter uh, to do this world tour, uh, sort of peace tour, and um, they wound up in Pakistan. And uh, you know, he bought a sitar and he was going around trying to find a, a damn a darn music book to te- to learn the sitar, you know, and they were. <laughs> Everywhere he went, they were like, "No, man, there, there's no, there's no book. You know, there's no book. It's, it's, it's passed down from teacher to student." And you know, that's the thing about, you know, the idea of complete imp- improvisational music, not notated, not European. Uh, have you had a? Did, did what was your first exposure to that kind of music? And, um, and could you talk about a transcendent experience in that 
in that in that form. That has totally been my experience in music. I mean, I I, uh, I had to learn to read music a bit singing in choirs when they were singing like pieces by Brahm and blah, blah, blah. But uh, even that music, I would memorize and feel it. My my reading ability sucks. But I'm able to play with great musicians because I can feel, I can hear where the music is going. It's No matter where it's from, it's still mathematic. You know what I mean? It's still going to come in at a certain place. Uh, you're still going to live it and breathe it and experience it and let it flow through you. And you, you have to connect with it spiritually to be able to partake in it, right. you know, to be able to join the conversation. So the music that I'm best at, you know, blues, rhythm and blues, Reggae. I, I've played in jazz groups. I've worked with, you know, work with Joe Sample. I work with different people in, in the Crusaders with uh, Sticks Hooper. You worked with Sticks. You, you worked with Sticks Hooper. Yeah, I worked with Sticks, Wilton, and Joe. Yeah. Oh, that's that... those, those, those are mentors. Sticks Hooper. I mean, Sticks to an extent, but Joe Sample and Wilton Felder were my finishing school why don't you talk about i want you explain why because i this is they i've interviewed them both rest in peace and but explain why they were your your graduate degree on the bandstand well i met those guys in about 78 and i i've been playing music for a while i had been recording for a while When, when i met them uh, I had been doing Smokey Robinson records. I was doing various things for Motown. I was doing various things in L.A. Uh, for, you know, producers like Norman Whitfield and, 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 and those kind of guys. Uh, I had worked with uh, my first record deals. My first two record deals were with Frank Zappa's record company, Bazaar, and with Michelle. Uh, so I kind of, and I had worked with, with Jamaicans, you know, I, I had been down and recorded with Bob Marley's band as, as the piano player wow, and as a guitar player, not as a bassist because, and those aren't my instruments, but I can feel them enough that I could participate in the music in a way that was rhythmic and where the vibes connected. And those guys accepted me and you know, had no idea that I was a bass player because they heard me playing guitar and keyboard. <laughs> so I kind of thought I knew what was going on with music. You know, I thought, okay, I've, I've kind of made it. And then Joe Sample came into a place where I was playing in about 78 in California. And uh, What was the name of the joint? You know. Oh, my Lord. I don't remember. Okay. It was just a, a, another place in that, you know, another place in California. Sure. You know, and there's a buzz. Okay, Joe Sample is here, and I'm going cool. Joe Sample is here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and you know we're from Fifth Ward, Houston, so there's that connection. You whoa, know, whoa, 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 whoa! Hold, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. You, you were younger than those cats, or were you in the, with Hubert Laws and all those cats? No, I'm, I'm nine years younger than Joe. Okay, so you saw them grow up in those wards. I mean, we you were in the you same. were. I'm sorry, you grew and, up. That's because I mean, this is I can't. So what you, did you know? Did you cross paths with them at that time, or you just knew them as sort of your elders? No, 
they 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 were like you know when, when I'm in elementary school, those guys are in high school or, or starting college. But on the streets of Fifth Ward in in those days, um, you know, I mean, I I would go from living in the country and going to juke joints and church and hearing that music to going to Houston and living with my biological mother who lived in Fifth Ward. So uh, as eight, nine, and ten year old kids, 11 and 12, whatever, we couldn't get in the clubs, but we would hang out behind the clubs and hear people like Lowell Fulsom or B.B. King or Bobby Bland, because we were scavenging bottles, you know. Right, right. <laughs> they were far behind. And uh, we would take them and, and sell them at the Chinese grocery store the next day and, 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 and make money. So I heard the music. You know, I, I heard that music from an early age. You heard that, that Gulf, the Gulf Coast gospel music, right? And of course, Gulf Coast gospel and blues and rhythm and blues. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fat dominoes, the, the things that were coming from New Orleans, plus like the Lowell Fulsons and those guys, Louis Jordans, those guys who were coming through and playing in the clubs. So I didn't really start playing music until I moved to Southern California. Um, and, you know, going to the integrated school, they were playing, like, surf music. I'm going, what the hell is this? <laughs> and Beach Boys, and I would hear this stuff, and i go, man, that's really, that's Chuck Berry. You guys, <laughs> you're saying this is the Beach Boys, and I'm hearing, it's everybody at an ocean. I'm going, no, man, that's Chuck Berry. <laughs> so, you know, I, I got into to music, playing with those, playing that kind of music when I started out, but I also learned to play Louie Louie and Twist and Shout and Shout and those kind of things that got, you know, got you into a band. So that was my my baptism in, into, into being a, a musician was that, you know, I feel this music and once I started doing it, it just felt like what I was supposed to be doing. So... You know, you go forward a few years, and I'm, I'm playing in, in this club in L.A., and there's Joe Sample, and he came up to me on the break and said, man, hi, you know, I'm Joe Sample, and blah, 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 and I go, you know, hi, I'm Ray, I'm from Fifth Ward, and we just started talking, and he said, man, who wrote, who's writing these tunes that you're doing? And it was a mixture of, of R&B and reggae and, you know, that kind of thing, and I said, well, you know, me. <laughs> and he said, you know, Man, those grooves you're playing, they're, they're stupid, but I like them. <laughs> <laughs> what did he mean by that, though? I mean, they were, they, 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 they had, they, they, it was yeah. you know, there was, there was, there was the R&B, there was the gospel in there, but there was also, there was some Caribbean stuff mixed in there, you know, and he was saying, what are you doing? And I was explaining to him what I was you know, what I was hearing and what I had done and blah, blah, blah. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing, you know, doing smoky records in the daytime, but I'm doing reggae shows at night. So I said, well, man, if you really like this, would you consider producing my band? And he said, well, you know, come up to the office. And, we, you know, we sat down with him and, and Wilton and Sticks. And they listened to the tunes, and they liked them. So as a precursor to them actually working with my band, they would, I would go to their sessions and watch 
how they worked. And at the time, Joe was writing Streetlights. So I got to go through that whole experience of the creation of Streetlights and various Crusader recording sessions. What, what, could you talk you know, about the, the nuanced nonverbal communication between those cats? Because, I mean, I mean, Wilton had like 13 or 15 sisters that he used to play for. Uh, Wayne Henderson, I mean, those guys were, they were salt of the earth. Cat. I mean, they were the most beautiful people. I've interviewed them all, except for Sticks. Sticks won't talk to me for some reason. But can you talk about the nonverbal communication that was inspiring to you, or just anything that was inspiring to you about their ability to get across a message in the studio and ultimately, you know, create a hit without tr wanting, without trying to create a hit. It was, to me, what I learned from them was the usage of space and tone and tonality. Tonality. Like when you play, when you hit it, when you release, uh, the sound, the tone on a certain song the fact that even though, you know, we, we think metronomically when it comes to beats with, with the Crusaders, well, a certain part of the tune should lean forward. It's okay to speed up when you get to the bridge. It's okay to speed up a bit on the outro. And it's okay to slow down a bit when you get to the verse. You know, that that's all part of a tune breathing. Mm. They would say that a song had I dig. to breathe. I dig. That, that, mu that music had to breathe. I remember one particular session we're doing one of my tunes and we started the tune you know one week and when we came back in to do the overdubs or, or you know to, to do the tune again we're playing it and we got Dean Parks on rhythm guitar and Joe's playing keyboards and I'm playing bass and Bob Wilson from Seawind is playing drums this great combination of people and we're grooving and Wilton's going man something just ain't right and we go, what do you mean something's not right? This, you know, this, this is what we were playing before. And, you know, this is just, they go, man, something's not right. Something's just bothering me. And finally, after about a half hour, he looks at the percussion player and he goes, man, is that the same set of claves you were using last week? And the guy goes, no, last week I was using the six-inch ones. This week I'm using the eight-inch ones. And he said, use the six-inch ones. And he he do that, and he's okay. That's right. <laughs> you know what I wow, mean. Wow. And they were that they were particular about how a tone affected the song. And uh, you know, if we were going to start a tune, Wilton was to say, "Just groove a while." And when I point at you, that's when we'll turn on the machine. And you know, we just be grooving and trying to find a thing, and Wilton would be shaking his head, and you know, then finally, man, I'd get frustrated, and I'd just start playing a different bass part, just because I'm going, what does he want? And when I'd make a little change, and that's it, he'd jump up and down, start screaming into the headphones, that's it, that made it. So then he start analyzing, well, what is he saying? Why does that make it, and this part not make it? And then when you really paid attention to what he was saying, you understood. Uh, another example is working on Street Life. It's a great tune. And they had worked for days on this tune and has finally gotten the tune down to where 
everybody was pretty happy, but it didn't have that little intro on it, that little, I used to hang around, you lost the sound. <laughs> no, that wasn't on there. And, you know, it's like after two weeks, Wilton was saying, the song's not done. You know, he and Joe had grown up together, and they were best of friends, and finally, can I say, can I quote Joe on the radio? I, I mean, Joe's listening from the heavens, so go ahead. <laughs> Motherfucker, what you mean? The goddamn song ain't done. I have poured my heart into this fucking song. <laughs> I have sweated blood into this song. What do you mean it's not done? And Wilton's just very relaxed and goes, it's not done. So Joe goes in the studio and he's pissed off. And he just starts banging on the piano. And he plays this little part that wound up being the intro to Streetlight. And when he did that, you know, the tape was rolling. And the whole time he's ranting and doing this tantrum. And he played it and he walks out and Wilton goes, okay, what you just played, that's what the song needed. <laughs> So that th there we there attacked wow. that part onto the beginning of the tune, you know, because the tune just really started with the da da da, da you know, the that that big build up. So when when Joe played that thing that's now the intro, you know, Wilton relaxed and said, "Okay, that's it, it's done." I mean, so just you know. But I mean, like, so so through frustration. I mean, he used. To, I did two. I've done three-hour interviews with Joe, and he used to talk about going into these clubs in Cleveland, and you know, the piano was like, "What dog du jour am I going to play today?" You know, <laughs> like what, like what, what, yeah. what piano am I going to have to bang back into tune? You know. But these guys were really. They didn't f around, man. Like, they, I mean, they were all beautiful people, but. Uh, Man, they really knew what they, with their ears, they really knew what they were looking for. They could feel it. I don't think there was much better. Yeah. I mean, you must have been grooving to that, the Jazz Crusader stuff with Buster Williams at the Lighthouse and stuff. You were cooking on that stuff probably, right? I loved all of this stuff. But getting to work with them and getting to just spend time with, with Joe and Wilton offstage. You know, having dinner, having Joe come down to my house. I lived in Laguna Beach at the time, and he gets frustrated with L.A. And he'd just come down to my house and, 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 and play my mom's piano. And spending those moments and talking about the Fifth Ward that we grew up in, the foods that we ate, the music that we listened to as kids, you know, even with them being nine years or so older than me, uh, just the, the time and the hours together that stuff rubbed off and until so Manjel was uh I mean he he was my big brother we loved each other he was one of my closest musical friends uh I can say that I learned more with him and Taj Mahal and, and this great jazz a bunch of jazzers that I ran into going to school at the University of Minnesota those guys really took the time to... Who did, who did you know, like Hubert Eves, or who did you know there? I knew Hubert Eves. Uh, there was a great jazz saxophonist named Morris Wilson, uh, the head of the uh, jazz department at the University of Minnesota was a guy named Reginald Buckner. You also knew Larry Loud, right? I knew Larry Loud. Larry Loud and I both worked with uh, the saxophone player, Morris Wilson. Morris 
was one of the guys that would say, man, if you, you know, I said, man, I don't play jazz. He said, then you can play blues. If you can play blues, you can play jazz. And I go, well, sort of, maybe. So <laughs> no, he, but I mean, like, like Larry Loud was, he's here in Tucson. He was in studio and he dropped Larry, your name. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you know, I just yeah. want this before it leaves my memory. I, I before I just could you describe the I I, I know that uh, Sticks, those guys were in the marching bands. Could you d- describe how similar the the second line marching rhythms of New Orleans were to the marching rhythms of the of the of the Houston wards? Well, that that whole marching band thing, then not only in Houston and Louisiana, but the great Jamaican drummers also all started out in the military marching bands. Like Sly Dunbar. Um, wow. Uh, what, what, wait, Barrett, what, what, uh, what, what military? The Jamaican military? Yeah, they, they were in marching bands, in, in the drum and bugle bands. Wow. Sly wanted to play a bugle, but they ran out of bugles, so they gave him drumsticks. <laughs> and he didn't want to play. <laughs> he didn't want to play drums. But he had to learn to play the, the military drums, the rudiments. Uh, Carl Barrett of the Whalers, man, who's just a phenomenal drummer, started in, in you know in, in the boys' school, playing the rudiments in 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 in, in the drum and bugle and five bands. Uh, Carl and Santa Davis, another dear friend of mine, who played with Peter Tosh. All those guys learned the military rudiments first. And you can hear that in the drumming, the the, the precision, you know. Um, I, I think that had a lot to do with a lot of those southern drummers. And they put, you know, the New Orleans, Houston, that triangle, the Gulf Triangle, and New Orleans being the, the, the northernmost city in, in, in the Caribbean. I hear a definite link between when I listen to Carlos drums, Carlton Paris drums, and the meters, and those guys loved the meters. All of them loved the meters. And they could pick up that stuff on, on their rediffusion uh, transistor radios down in Jamaica. So there was a big connection between the reggae and, and what was going on in New Orleans. Wow, that's fascinating stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean it was like um, when you talk, when you think about um, like today, uh, do you feel like a couple questions? I mean, setting aside some of the, you know, the Finnegans and the Taj Mahals and the and the cats that are like yourself, who, you know, have been able to uh, through reputation and longevity, you know, you you are um, still thriving in some ways on the bandstand. Um, how much of it, how hard is it to keep a working band together in 2017 for a long period of time because there really isn't a vibrant touring circuit the way there once was? I mean, I know that you were staying uh, at certain venues for two weeks, three weeks at a time, sometimes more, uh, and it really helped you develop your own individual sound and it made the bands much more trusting and tighter and ultimately adding to the vocabulary of music. I mean, how much of an issue is it today that younger cats just cannot stay together so long? Or are there bands that you can point to that are staying together long and and that are bucking the trend? You know, when younger cats ask me today, like, should I go into music? I have to tell them that part of you has to be dysfunctional and insane. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that's one of the things that, <laughs> that Finnegan and I joke about. You have to, you have to be nuts. Yeah. You have to, you have to have some kind of OCD. You know that this is what you're going to do, and if you don't do this, you're sick inside. You have to do it as your therapy, as as your form of worship. worship as uh, you know, it, it's not something that a normal person would do. Uh, and I, you know, I wonder if I was doing it now, would I do this, or would I have just gone ahead and stayed as a college teacher, which which was my second choice of, you know, of occupations, you know, some to be involved in the learning process. Um, I, I can't give you a rational answer. You have to be nuts. But uh, uh, l- l- so let's just. Con- but I mean, instead of throwing out words like nuts and crazy, how about the idea? The classic line from from Joseph Campbell: "The insecure way is the secure way." You didn't want to take the secure route; you wanted to take the insecure route, right? And that is an emboldening route. So that's what's what. When you say crazy and nuts, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, you have to get a certain fulfillment from doing this that nothing else brings you, and it has to bring you that fulfillment in a way that's that's spiritually overwhelming. That you have to do it; that nothing else fulfills you. That, 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 that if you do something else, you feel like, well, I, I missed my calling. I, I left my job undone. If you want to say spiritually, I didn't use the gift that God gave me. You know? That's right. And, um, and you would never forgive yourself if you had not walked out on. I mean, that's that's what uh, M. Tume said. You know, I mean, you know, you, you just. Uh, you, you can't be. If you're going to go out on that limb, you can't be afraid to, to fall down. I mean, you know, and, and, and then get yeah. and get back and fail and, and and then sort of deal with those lonely avenues that come with it, because then pretty soon you find yourself on the bandstand at Sunsplash, you know, with, uh, you know, whoever, you know, it's like it comes quickly. And yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's something to be said for uh, finding your soul or or knowing that you're going after your true nature and that you'll be able to go in this life uh, that and you can say that you did you tried your best and went after what you what you knew was your strongest strongest attributes and gifts you know you know Jake I'm still overwhelmed it's actually me going on stage sometimes I'm mm-hmm. I, you know just I, I admire music and musicians so much growing up that through whatever level of success that I've had, I'm still overwhelmed sometimes when I look up on stage, when, I, when I'm on stage and I look out in the audience and I go, wow, this is really me up here doing this. There's people that came to see me do this and they, they like it. You know, I just turned 69 years old, but I'm, I'm still overwhelmed when I go on stage that it's actually me who's doing it. I'm, I'm still amazed. Uh, I'm, I'm still really thankful and, and appreciative. Mm. And I think that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you doing it at, at this stage. And there's, you know, I have a circle of, of, of musical friends that we all kind of feel the same way, you know, whether it's the Phantoms or Papa Molly or Taj or hanging out with my lifelong friend Bonnie Raitt a couple of weeks ago. We, we're still amazed. You know, knowing who our heroes are and what they accomplished and how we try and strive to do that thing, there's a, there's a sense of amazement and, and humility 
that I get when 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 I'm sitting here, when I'm doing what I do. do I, I still sometimes can't believe that it, this is me doing this, and I know what I'm doing. I'm actually fairly decent at it, but thank you, God. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I... I mean, I wonder if, if my generation and younger generations, if the ego has superseded the music. You know, I think that the, what you're really saying is that you know that that the music is always above any one person. And Well, that's what the is. You know what I mean? If you're going to be on, do this for a long time for a living, eventually the music will supersede the ego because you'll get kicked in the nuts a million times and <laughs> <fail>. <laughs> Yeah, you, you get humbled. You got no nuts left, man. Okay. Yeah, you you get yeah you get humbled daily and continuously in this business. You, you you tour 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 for two three years and then you hit a dry spell for six months and you go, God, will I ever work again? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and that happens to all of us. You know, that happens to all of us. So um, uh, that's what I, I mean. But you have there has to be a part of you that's this 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 nuts. <laughs> this this OCD or M- musical compulsive disease. You have to do it. Mm. That is a very, very, very heavy thing. Did you? Can you talk about any collaboration you've ever done with the the congero Larry McDonald? You know, Larry and I know each other, but we've never gotten to work together. We're friends through Taj and, and through Kester Smith. And and to we have a lot of mutual Jamaican friends. I just figured you but, guys you know, must I, have crossed paths if you were down, but you didn't. Okay, so that because he was really the first Congo player to play uh, with with Bob and and those cats. Man, uh, playing with Bob, I, I, I mean, well, you know, not, not so much with Bob, but with the Whalers. I got to work with Seiko Patterson and a brother named uh, Scully Sims, a brother named Sky Juice. Uh, those are the uh, uh, Leroy Horsemouth Wallace. Those are the guys that were doing the session um, in Kingston during my you know time there, especially the late seventies and the early to mid eighties. Those were that's when I was in Jamaica a lot and recording there a lot. But I got to work with you know, as I wasn't playing bass or or drums or playing keyboards, I got to work with with, with Sly and Robbie. I got to work with, with Family Man Barrett and Carlton Barrett. Uh, I got to work with uh, Fully Fullwood, and, who's Peter Tosh's bass player, and with, with Tony Chen and, and, and all of the, the, the Jamaican reggae architects. You know, those, those guys were my teachers, and, and I would live with, at their houses. Bunny Rugs and Cat Cool from Third World. Um, those, those guys are, are my brother's to this day, and, and a lot of them have reached out to me in the last 24, 48 hours. You know, there's a kinship and a brotherhood. So I got inculturated into in, in, into Jamaican music, and I got to see the connection between blues, rhythm and blues, and reggae. Like Bob always had a blues guitar player in his band. Wow. You know, he, he always had an Al Anderson or, um, or Donald Kinsey. Someone, some guitar player that that, had, that played blues, and 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 that was Bob Singh. When Al Anderson said, "Man, what do you want me to do in your, in your band?" Bob said, "Just play blues." <laughs> uh, so I got to see the connection and experience the connection and and feel the connection, you know, not in an academic way, but like what we're talking about in a non 
notated way that you had to feel it, you had to experience it, had to go there and eat the food. Boy, in the land of times Jamaica, you know, you know, you had to, you had to just dive into the culture to do it. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. The, the, the curry, I mean, the curry goat, and the, I mean, all that stuff, man. I mean, you, you I mean, I've never been. I've interviewed. Uh, I, I don't know, man. I, if you, some of those drummers. I mean, I've. I need to get to some of those trap set drummers. I mean, I'd love you mentioned one cat, I think Tasha's drummer. I just would love to talk to some of those cats if any of them are available or willing to talk because I, I just my sh- my show has become about rhythm and uh, and and rhythm is love and, uh, and 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 I'm not talking about a drum machine. You know, I'm talking about real human beings. It comes from the heart. So if there's any of those drummers, no, no. yeah, go ahead. I'd be glad to introduce you to uh, to uh, Tasha's bass player and drummer. They're they're, they're they're my brothers. You know, I, I love those guys. Yeah, and, and to yeah. uh, to Tony Chan, who played rhythm guitar and all that stuff, like a sun is shining. Dun, 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 I want you know, I, I want all Tony. the all the accompanists and all the brothers that either that you've collaborated with. You know, though, it's a people's history of music, but it's one of those regional places that I just it's absolutely essential to get to. You know, I've gotten to. Uh, to uh, Ken Booth, and I've gotten to uh, yeah. I've, you know I've I've I've, I've ta- Monty Alexander, who's a little more of a jazzer, but you know I'm like yeah. you know, it's like I, you know like that. You're right. I mean, Marley always kept the blues in his music, and I just think that's the. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they also completely developed a completely new. Uh, well, it wasn't necessarily new. It was almost simplistic. But, yeah, I, I mean, I've interviewed all the, the session cats. I mean, uh, Ron Tutt, uh, you know, was like, I said, when was, the, when was the one time in your career where you were humbled by which musical idiom? And he said, man, when I first heard reggae, I didn't know what they were doing. And there was a warehouse in, in, in Dallas where he was, before he got the gig with Elvis, and he, they were giving away, like, like dozens and dozens of all these and this is like early this is like late 60s early 70s maybe and and um probably 60 uh, i don't even know what it was it but i mean just heptone records and whalers and 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 they were they were like well we're just going to chuck this stuff so you know if you want it and he said he walked out of there with two armfuls of reggae records and just practiced them relentlessly for months yeah <laughs> you know so it's like i mean that's the that's the vocabulary that's needed and we need to keep growing the vocabulary of the the language of music in order for our civilization. You were talking before very eloquently about this migration uh, research and stuff that you devoted yourself to. I mean, um, you know, part of it is cultural identity and and being able to focus on on who we are as 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 people, and music is a huge part of that. So, um, I, just before I let you go, um, I mean, we've been cooking here for an hour and a half. We're gonna have to do part two. At some, we just had I had a ball here with you, but. Uh, happily you know and i appreciate your support of my program but um what is your biggest concern about your family or the people of houston right now well it it, it has been a mixed blessing you know i'm I'm, i feel really bad about the, the suffering that has gone on they're still uncovering bodies they probably will be for the next few days uh, I've been. I have not been able to get into Houston. I'm hoping to get into to, there tomorrow. My family's been there. My wife and daughter are there. My God! Wait, hold on. Uh, you actually, you actually have a, a a residential house in Greater Houston, or is that right? I'm a little bit 
I'm out near the airport. I'm in the city of Humble in, in a subdivision called Atascacita. And even though it's by Lake Houston, fortunately, it is never flooded. Though this time it got within about a half a mile of my house. It's amazing. So you you I'm, became, I'm, you, but, you, but just to be clear, your area was relatively unscathed compared to some of these other places. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we had electricity for all but about two or three hours. So when Ike came through, I was I was down for 10 days with no electricity. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of suffering. There's going to be more suffering, especially as we, people try and get back into their houses with mold and having to rip out, you know, the carpets, rip out the, the you know, the, the baseboards and, and uh, the walls to get the mold out and things dry out. Uh, there's it's the, the rebuilding process is going to be extensive i hope it's i hope it's run more efficiently than what people in new orleans went through with, with, with the lower ninth which still hasn't been rebuilt but the blessing part of it is you know politics have divided us in such a way you know that it has been really horrendous the past year but you had all those elements of people you know houston is has a large hispanic population and a large black population, and a lot of people who you would consider rednecks, and all those people were forced to work together to save each other's lives. They had to form a collective cooperative effort to pull through. And, you know, unfortunately, man, on things like 9-11 or Katrina or Christmas Day or Easter Sunday, <laughs> we tend to kind of get along and drop our bullshit, People had to drop bullshit and get along. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we can keep some of that spirit. I, I know in a lot of ways people will, will resort to blah, blah, to what they were before. But I hope we're able to, to keep as much as that spirit. Uh, talking about deporting the Mexican people. Well, shit, who the hell is going to help rebuild the city? Because they, that's a big part of, of the trade industry there, of the builders, of the street builders, of the home builders. Is the Hispanic population. You know, they've been assimilated into the culture of the city. Um, they have talents and skills and, and mind and heart set that we're really going to need to rebuild. We're going to have to drop our individual bullshit and, and form a collective spirit to rebuild. That, that, that's, the, that's the mixed part of it that I really hope we're able to maintain going. I know we'll lose some of it because... You know, we are human beings, and we take on these bodies. All of false. So, um, no, I mean, do you, do you, do you? Uh, it, it is inspiring to see uh, just people helping people, but just in general, do you? Uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see the fallout from Texas because they pride themselves on not really being part of. <laughs> not really wanting to be part of the United States of America. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, a, I don't see the leader. Yeah. I don't see the leadership from, uh, on a, on a large scale. That that's my biggest concern in general. Why we could reach a crisis is just because people talk about Barack Obama. Barack Obama was one person. I mean, uh, when you were coming up, you just riffed on Bonnie Raitt, Bob Marley, Mike Finnegan, Taj Mahal, Jim Keltner, uh, you know, Hal Blaine, Earl Palmer, uh, Lamonte McLemore, the Friends of Distinction, 
James Gadsden, 100, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of leaders. I mean, and, and you, you can't just one person can't do it all. And the governor of Texas can't is he's a clown. I mean, it's I mean, what I'm saying. I, you know, I, I, I feel you. And yet I just don't understand. You need legions of people. And I don't see that. I see the people that are, quote unquote, our leaders are just divisive people. So I, I generally I just pray for. Uh, all the peeps that are suffering that have lost everything material in their lives, let alone anything, let alone any death. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where I just, you know, that's my biggest fear at 39 is just fig- trying to figure out where is the collective leadership? Because it's not, one person can't do it alone. Well, leadership is going to come from the bottom up. You know, I mean, uh, uh, most of these people who are Democrats and Republicans, as Ty says, it's the same dog. One end growls and eats, the other end farts and shits. And every eight years, it changes. The dog changes direction. So uh, I'm just hoping that uh, I, I don't see a person in politics from either side that I would trust and say, okay, I put my trust in that person to be the person that leads. Houston has, Sylvester Turner, the current mayor of Houston, is a pretty decent cat. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, and I, I uh, just say, like, the, like, I'm just saying the, the, the whole idea of, you know, what the, before this horrible storm, you know, the fact that the governor was going to deprive funding for towns that were, quote, unquote, harboring illegal immigrants, illegal aliens, uh, that crap mm-hmm. is going to, that, that crap just doesn't ever end. You know, and and that to me is like it's just poisonous. That was their land to begin with. They are a vital part yeah. of you know. And, and why why that can't be? Whatever. I'm not going to sit here and be naive. I'm just saying we go. But we're back to the original part of our conversation. My, my here's my point. Uh, continue to lead by example. Lead from the bottom up, like you said, and uh, keep inspiring. And um, uh, and let's get this guy out of the White House uh, as soon as possible, because uh, I, I just all I'm also, also going to say is that I don't think half the people in this country didn't vote because they wanted Bernie and it was Hillary or I, I Larry. I, I mean, I really look at I think a lot of people in our country have given up. I think they're overwhelmed with grief. They have no hope and they don't believe that either party can solve their problems. And that's the most incur- discouraging thing is when you just have no hope left. And that's when, that's when, you know, civilizations fall. I don't have any, you know, I, I know plenty of people that punched the ticket for Hillary uh, that, that, uh, that would have supported Bernie. I just look at that ap- apathy and, and also a, a despair is, is creeping in more than ever before because we have never been at a more, uh, uh, we've never lived in a time when our economy has been as, as as close to the edge it has been since since the Great Depression. You know, man. Uh, I think maybe one of the things about being a musician is you have to be an eternal optimist. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I'm normally you know, I'm normally so opt. I don't even know how or why we've we've gone in this direction. I'm normally like the happiest cat on the block, but you know, yeah, yeah. You're the eternal optimist, so riff on that. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm really hoping people that 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 the majority of us can can maintain the spirit that going for, forward we have to work together to build or rebuild, and that it benefits all of us. And if it doesn't benefit us personally, it would mean less bullshit going forward for our kids and grandkids. You know, so I'm gonna keep doing my part to keep things moving forward, man. I I travel and and my audience. Now, as I get older and doing this blues music, whether it's with Taj or with, with Ruthie Foster, who I'm currently touring with, is most of our audience is older white people. And I know a lot of them voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But when they're listening to the music, when they're in that spirit, when they're in that zone, they're some of the nicest and sweetest people. I don't believe everybody who voted for Trump is a demagogue. I think that some of them are, are just, you know, lifelong Republicans. I think some of them just, you know, there was the, the okay, I am on, you say internet radio, I can say what I want. Yeah. There was the fuck you vote, you know? Like, I'm just going to vote for this guy because fuck you to the system, fuck you to everything. Right. There's that element. I hope that we, that, that seeing the results of that, I'm hoping that's not the spirit that we're going to go forward in. I hope some of the younger people, the younger crowd that didn't vote at all, and a lot of them didn't, you know, the Generation X millennials, millennials uh, I hope something can be done. I, I hope some musical artist, I hope some movie, I hope some cultural event can come about that generates and motivates their support and, and their willingness to participate in a positive society. I hope as they start having kids, that they start thinking like less about what's what's in my next mochiati grande, uh, soy free, gluten free latte or whatever the hell it is they hold up the lines in the coffee shops to buy. I hope that that, that thing takes over, and they get into more we than me. You know, we we there was a lot of of, of collective we in my generation. You know, because we saw that we together could could march in civil rights marches. We saw that we together could have the anti-war movement. We saw that we together could be hippies. We saw that we together could do a lot of things that hadn't been done in our society. So I'm hoping that some kind of forward-moving movement comes along that that puts the we and and puts the the love back into humanity. I, I hope that people start liking the same Jesus that I like, you know what I mean? That they'll say, well, I, I like my Christians, but I hate everybody else, you know, pardon the accent. Yeah. But, you know, I hope that we get more into that spirit, that spirit, you know, because you, you start pointing fingers at people. When you point a finger, there's three pointed back at you. So I'm, I'm hoping that we get into some kind of positive forward movement as a nation, as a society, uh, be it generationally, uh, whatever. Uh, I'm just hoping that, that it comes a, a collective thing where that can unite us for something that's more love-inspired than hate-driven and fear-driven. I know that both parts are necessary. I know that, 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 that fear and love are, you know, equal components, and you have to have both for balance. You have to have people that are afraid of collapse. You know, so we don't collapse, but you have to have enough people that, that are motivated by love so we stick together. Larry Fulcher, uh, that was uh, 
we just passed our hundredth minute in part one. Uh, I had a ball with you, man. Thank you so much. Safe travels back. I hope uh, hope everything is okay when you get back, and uh, you know, just much love and support to all the people uh, in Houston who are uh, you know going to have to deal with this working together. You know, so thanks. But thanks for dropping knowledge. We'll do it again real soon. Yeah, and thank you, Jake. And if you want uh, to to meet some, some great and influential reggae players, I'll be glad to, to to connect you with some of my friends. All of them, baby. All right. All right, buddy. All right, man. Yo, be good, Larry. Have a safe trip, man. You too, buddy. Peace and and God bless. And I'll, I'll talk to you again. God bless. Thank you, Larry. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Incredible musician and a better human being, Larry Fulcher, part of the Jake Feinberg show. We got a big week coming up. Danny Krieger will be in studio on Friday. Mazer Stallworth and Dean Brown uh, this weekend on the JFS. Until then, peace. <laughs>